Good morning, High Point. Today's scripture reading is going to be from Acts chapter 4, verses 1 through 21. Um, it's on page 1660 in your pew Bible. Uh, as you all flip in the Bible, I don't know about you, but I don't hear from God audibly um, yet. Hopefully one day I'll be able to do that. But uh, until then, we do believe that the Bible is the word of God. And when we hear it read, that it's God speaking to us. So um, please think about that as we read, even though it's my voice. So. The priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. They were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people, proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. They seized Peter and John, and because it was evening, they put them in jail until the next day. But many who heard the message believed, so the number of men who believed grew to about 5,000. The next day, the rulers, the elders, and the teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. Annas, the high priest, was there, and so were Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and others of the high priest's family. They had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them. By what power or what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who was lame and are being asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel. It is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. Jesus is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished, and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. But since they could see the man who had been healed standing there with them, there was nothing they could say. So they ordered them to withdraw from the Sanhedrin and then conferred together. What are we going to do with these men, they asked. Everyone living in Jerusalem knows they have performed a notable sign, and we cannot deny it. But to stop this thing from spreading any further among the people, we must warn them to speak no longer to anyone in this name. Then they called them in again and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, which is right in God's eyes, to listen to you or to him? You be the judges. As for us, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. After further threats, they let them go. They could not decide how to punish them because all the people were praising God for what had happened. This is the word of the Lord. Is it on? Sweet. Hey, I'm going to use a stool today because I've been sick in bed for this whole week. And yeah, I was like, I had a day off planned on Monday and that mostly was me being delusionally sick. So I'm not doing this to be cool. I actually don't have a lot of energy reserves. So um, one of the most famous verses in this passage that much ink has been spilt about 
is um, judge for yourselves whether or not we should do what you say or what God says. That's partly because in the, the Bible is a very pro-authority book, generally speaking. Over and over and over again it says, obey the authorities, obey the authorities, obey the authorities, obey the authorities, obey the authorities. And so when something happens where somebody doesn't and says we're going to obey God instead, it actually is a very notable moment. I think one of the things that we have to face early on in trying to make any sense of this kind of stuff is that um, if you understand what human beings are really like and how they have to live together, you will come to understand at some age or another, some experience or another, that authority is 100% necessary in human societies of any kind. The minute you get more than one person, it's best for somebody to be somewhat in charge of some things or another. Even in healthy marriages, um, most marriages, even that are egalitarian in authority, they're like, well, nobody's the boss of anybody. Usually they still have domains and roles so that they're not constantly in conflict with each other. And yet, though authority is 100% necessary in human life, 100% predictable in relationship to that authority is going to be conflicts about authority. Part of the reason for that is because we exist in the sinful condition. We're created in the image of God and in the sinful condition. And part of the selfishness of the sinful condition is we like the benefits of things without the liabilities or the responsibilities. Authority is something that has enormous benefits and enormous liabilities. And so we want an enormous good with no responsibility, and it creates an enormous amount of conflict. And that's true whichever end of authority you're at, whether you're in authority or whether you're under authority. If you're under authority in the position of submission, then you normally want the protection and the provision that the authority offers without the duties of submission and support. If you're the person who's in authority, you normally want the power and the privilege of having authority without the duties of self-sacrifice and provision and protection that you're in that position for. What that produces among both people in the authority-submission relationship is distrust. And what that distrust produces in the person in authority is tyranny. And what it produces in the person who's in submission and distrust is rebellion. And so goes the world. As we go through the book of Acts, in Acts 4 and 5, there's a very strong conflict of authority. And it is rooted in a conflict between um, the, this new church with no power and the religious state with all the power that says, you can't do this. And there's a conflict between the church and the state, or the Christian in the state. And they say in this first conflict in chapter 4, when they're told by the authority of the state, you can't do this, they say, listen, you're going to have to judge for yourselves whether it would be right for us to obey you instead of God. And the, of course, the assumption is we're not going to, right? Now, that can bring up two, I think, really legitimate questions of authority if you're trying to think this through. One is, when is it actually right to defy authority? And if you're going to defy authority, how do you do it? Now, that second question we'll talk about as Acts goes on because there's a number of places where it happens and it's done well and we'll deal with that in future weeks. And then the second is, how do duty and conscience 
work through the extended moral relationships. Now, that's probably not how you would have phrased it in your head, but it, it kind of goes like this. If I'm supposed to be morally aware of the implications of me following something, right? So that if I have to obey God instead of the authority, or I have to be aware of that, to what extent should my conscience say I can't do stuff? What's the nature of how I decide whether or not I can or can't do something as a Christian in relationship to the authority that I'm under, right? Does that make sense? Here, let me give you some examples. Now, I'm not going to answer all these questions, but usually this, this gets difficult when it's a relationship to the association or the enablement of the thing you end up serving. So if you act according to your duty under a certain authority, you're going to affect lots of things or people. And some of the associations of who you affect and some of the things that you'll enable by your work are not going to be morally praiseworthy. And does that mean you can't do them if there are any associations or enablements in anything you do that leads to evil? For example, should a Christian be the CEO of a pornographic development company? That was, that might be an easy one. I don't know. It gets harder as you go down. Could a Christian be the CFO of a magazine company that has 10% of its operation in porn pornographic creation and distribution? What if it's 1%? What if it's 40%? Can a Christian be a mailman knowing that among the mail that he delivers is a certain not insignificant percentage of pornography and predatory credit card loans and things like that that lead to great evil? Can a Christian be a driver who drives a limousine who sometimes gets guests that want to be brought to allegedly gentlemen's clubs? Can you be a driver, right? Or can a Christian be a writer for an anti-religious journal attacking all religious people? Can a Christian be the editor in a non-Christian lifestyle magazine like Self or Cosmo that put forward an enormously secular and anti-Christian worldview? Can you be an editor at that magazine? Can you even, can you be a type editor, somebody who looks for Oxford commas, in a broadly secular publishing company, not knowing what book you might be editing? It might be Bart Ehrman's next book on why the New Testament is junk. Can a Christian be a spy, a soldier that may have to eliminate non-military targets without legal recourse or knowledge of that target's guilt? Is it better if you're just a soldier, not knowing who you might be called to kill or subdue? Or can you even be a police officer, knowing that if you're in any city's police department, there's going to be problems in how things are administrated. It's not all going to be fair, and some of the things are going to lead to ugly and problematic ends. Can you be on the staff of a non-truthful politician? Can you teach at a school that teaches morally compromised or less than factual curriculum? Can you be the bodyguard of somebody who deserves to be hurt? Can you be the financial planner— yeah, that one was funny. <laughs> Can you be the financial planner for somebody who's called a slumlord by people? Can you be their builder? Can you stay silent or stay in a class or major at a university that attacks or undermines faith? Can you work at a coffee shop or be a grocer at a place that's not fair trade? Can you work for a politically active business owner who attacks other people with the productivity of his business? Can you cut video at a sensationalist news organization? Can you web host for companies that have too high a profit margin? Or you could put it this way. Should a Christian be anything? Right? 
Is there any vocation that does not have moral hazard of association or enablement? There's this passage in 1 Corinthians 5 where Paul had told the church not to associate with sexually immoral people. But what he meant by that was people who explicitly claim to be Christians who are openly sexually immoral. He said, I never dreamed that you would stop relating to sinful people like outside the church. He's like, you would have to leave reality to do that. That's not possible, and God's not actually calling you to do that. You're going to be intermixed with all kinds of people. You're going to be wading through junk your whole life. Christians who do their duties never have morally clean pants. One example of this in 1 Kings 18, I didn't know about this one. Sorry if that wasn't a good metaphor for you. Um, In 1 Kings 18, there's this character. Now, Ahab is one of the worst kings in the whole Old Testament. There's some pretty bad ones, but he's, I mean, he definitely would get a nomination for worst king if he wouldn't win the award. And um, there's this interesting verse in 1 Kings 18.3. Ahab summoned Obadiah, who was in charge of his palace— And then, and this is almost never happens in Old Testament narratives, that there is an editorial comment that tells you how you're supposed to think about somebody. Usually it shows you, it doesn't tell you, okay? But in this case, it's very rare, there is one. Because you might not think that somebody who was in charge of Ahab's whole palace was a devout believer. So he explicitly tells you, he says, now, Obadiah was a devout believer in the Lord. Which kind of makes you want to go, hold it there, captain, right? Ahaz, Ahaz is the, Ahab is the worst king. He, he, I mean, like, murdering people, like, terrible, terrible. This guy's in charge of his whole household, including his security and his food and all that kind of stuff. And that guy is a devout believer who God approves of. Put that one in your theology pipe and smoke it. or vape cigarette, whatever it is now. Um, (coughs) Here's what we need to take away from this passage and begin to assert into our lives of faith in Jesus. Christ's salvation, when you believe the gospel, when you turn your life over to the crucified and risen Jesus to save you and cleanse you and reform you and make you part of what he's doing in the world, Christian salvation reasserts God's authority, his absolute authority over all people and all things and all places, over all earthly authorities in every way, at every time, at every moment, period. Full stop, to use a well-known telegraph metaphor from the 1800s, right? But in doing so, he then also turns around and rehabilitates our concept of duty so that his authority doesn't actually paralyze us. He wants the affirmation of his authority to actually free us, not paralyze us. And putting those two together is actually pretty important, so let's try to do that for a few minutes. The first is when you believe in Jesus, God absolutely reasserts his own authority, and he does it specifically over the things that most compete with him. Now, he asserts his authority over all authorities, but he specifically focuses on the ones that tend to compete for godhood, that is, the state and the self. The thing that's godlike about the state is that the state, because it's the highest authority, has the least accountability, and it also has the fewest escapes or alternatives. If you're 17 or older and you hate your daddy, you can run away. If you don't want to follow a federal law, well, 
I hope you have a passport. I mean, like, it's not the same thing. And when we seek to save ourselves, when the state tells us to do something we shouldn't do, when we follow the state into immorality, who are we really picking? Ourselves. We don't want to be disapproved of by so powerful an idol. So when we pick the state, we're really also picking ourselves. But when the state says, listen, you guys need to shut up or we're not even going to tell you what we're going to do to you, but it's going to be bad. John and Peter's reply, because they have this relationship of authority straight now, it's a real easy answer. And I want you to understand something. When you come to believe the gospel, it may be scary to believe with this level of authority in God. That like all your pleasures, all your leisures, all your money, all your jobs, every day, all, everything is under the authority of God. You belong to him. That may be terrifying, but listen, it's also incredibly freeing. Think about the freedom to stand in front of people who can kill you and they say, shut your mouths and, it be, and you be able to just respond without even really thinking. Just say, listen, it's real simple. It's real simple. Is it right for us to obey you or God? That's freedom. Make no mistake, there are other kinds of freedom maybe, but that's freedom. And it's the kind of freedom that they actually didn't traffic in a couple months earlier. If you remember when Jesus was getting crucified, they arrested him and took him to this place, and Peter tried to follow, but he didn't want to get in trouble. And there were some people there that were probably some of the people who were involved in arresting Jesus who were in the courtyard of the place where Jesus was being held. And there were some people who looked at Peter and were like, hey, I, aren't you, didn't you follow Jesus? And he's like, no, no, it wasn't me. And he says no a couple of times. And by the time he says no a couple of times, they pick up on his Galilean brogue, right? And they're like, wait a second, you say you're not one of his followers, but there's not a lot of Galileans in downtown Jerusalem, and dude, you're a Galilean. Surely you are with him. And one of the things that people don't catch on with a lot of times, and I certainly didn't first couple times I've read it, is that it says that Peter called down curses on himself and swore to them, I don't know the man. Now think about this. Who are you actually calling down curses from when you do that? You're calling them down, and who curses people, right? That's, div that's a divine action, right? So what Peter is doing is to get himself off the hook with the state, he's throwing God under the bus. That's literally what he's doing. He's taking the supposed authority of God and using it to utilize and put him into an ingratiated state with people who might have the ability to arrest him too. It's exact, it is literally exactly the opposite of what happens in Acts 4. And that happened because Peter finally got sorted out in his mind and heart what Jesus had told him early on when he was following. He was following Jesus in, in Luke's gospel. It says that Jesus said, listen, if you want to follow me, <coughs> every day, right, you have to deny yourself Take up your cross and follow me, just like you're going to get killed every single day. Every day when you wake up, you got to think, am I ready to be killed today? Is my devotion to myself so put aside? Is, it my, is my desire for whatever earthly gains I hope for so put aside that I can really live free in God today? 
right? And he's like, you got to sort that out every day. Thinking about death and preparing for death prepares for life. Living the way it should be done and it's meant to be done. And the difference, and see, Jesus had already heard that when he did this, <laughs> right? It just hadn't taken hold yet. The difference in Acts is it had taken hold now. Peter actually believed now that Jesus was the risen king. He'd seen it with his own eyes. And so that had re, when he came to that salvation, it had reordered his understanding of authority. God had totally reasserted his authority. There is no higher authority than Jesus. None. And everybody who claims to believe in Jesus and to identify as a Christian has to get that sorted out. Now, I realize that for some of you and some of us and for me, um, it, that waxes and wanes. And it, it grows over time for many as you really begin to walk and understand the stuff. And sometimes it gets better and other times it's worse. But it has to be at the heart of what we believe about what we're meant to be. This, one of the things, though, that happens when people really believe that is that if God is morally perfect— when you understand that God is absolutely holy, that he's holy, he's just absolutely perfect in every way, on every level, he's just morally beautiful, and he's not compromised that, and there's a purity to him that is unseen in anything else, it's, it can be enormously paralyzing to say, okay, God is an authority, he's the number one authority, I have to do what God wants in everything, and he is so morally perfect. You go to try to step out your front door, and you realize that anything that you do feels like it's going to morally foul you in some way. Everything has an association or some connection with something or enables something that is less than perfect. And it can be enormously paralyzing to be like, well, what? how do I engage in this world? How do I act? What do I do? I mean, my boss is a jerk. If I work well, he's going to get richer. You know, like there's all kinds of things. And so you, it can be extremely paralyzing to be like, well, I can't totally and perfectly serve God doing my job or being a this or what? How do I do that? And it's because you get, we get the sense that if anything we do has any bad connection to anything, then God isn't totally our number one priority. And if that's true, how could you ever commit to doing anything without knowing everything it was going to entail, which is, of course, impossible. And so you see, getting the authority of God straight is an, it's totally necessary. It's extremely important. It's meant to be freeing, and it can be incredibly paralyzing. And you've met self-righteous religious people or irreligious, enormously moralistic people who seem like they're actually frozen in their life, not freed to moral courage and greatness because of how they think about how to be pure. And therefore, it becomes about—it tends to have a fundamentalist impulse that the only way to achieve this is to withdraw and withdraw and withdraw, and that's really not an option. Because the number one biggest Christian command is to—it starts with an L, has an O-V in it, and there's an E near the end, and to love people, right? Who— 
believes that someone consistently and constantly withdrawing from them at every episode is loving them. That's not, that's not how that works, right? It's not an option to keep withdrawing. And so one of the things that God does because he understands authority way better than us is that while he takes authority over every earthly power, he then turns around and creates an authority dynamic whereby we can live real lives in that, is, that are totally faithful in an incredibly morally complex world. And it is by giving back the authorities of the world and telling us to live out our roles and duties among those authorities. It's very clever. Sorry, that was the wrong button. And so he demands his triumphing over the state and the self, and then he turns around and he gives us back the state and the self and all other authorities in relationship to their right scope of authority and our actual duty to that authority. And by living in those duties, we actually can do what we're supposed to do with a clear conscience, recognizing that we, we wish that you could touch the world with white gloves and not get dirty, but you can't. That world has not yet come. One of the examples of this in First Peter is this. First Peter says this to the Christians. Submit yourself for the Lord's sake. Because you believe in Jesus, submit yourself to— I want you to pay attention to this phrase because it is not ambiguous. Every authority instituted among men. Did you say? He's saying, because you believe in Jesus, you're to submit yourself to every authority. It does not say every divinely instituted authority. It doesn't say, if you can find a biblical passage or multiple biblical passages that say this is one of God's institutions, then and only then should you submit to it. That's not what it says. It says, if the society in which you live has instituted an authority, it is an authority among men, you are to submit to it because you're a Christian. Does that make sense? That's what the passage says. Colon, right? Whether to the king as the supreme authority or to governors or who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and commend those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing good, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish men. What's he specifically referring to? What he's saying is because everybody knows Christians have God as their king, because God is the ultimate authority for everybody who's really a Christian, it will make us social anarchists. We don't, have to, we don't have to submit to any of these authorities. Jesus is our king. We believe in King Jesus. We don't believe in Caesar. We don't believe in the IRS, right? And so we do whatever we want. And we don't have to, we don't have to pay our taxes. And we don't have to submit to the police. And we don't have to, because we're Christians and Jesus is God. And we're going to do what he wants to do, whatever we think that might be. And, and what, Paul sa- what Peter's saying is you need to shut up that stereotype. That is not right. And people will hate the gospel, and they will not believe in Jesus, and they will misunderstand reality, and you will not honor God. You have to, sh- you have to show people that is not true. That the people that do not believe the state is God are the same people who are the best at submitting to it. That's what you have to show them. Be- for Christ's sake, because you believe in Jesus. He says, live as free men because God is the highest authority. He is the authority over the state. But don't use your freedom to cover up for evil. 
That is, to not respect right authority. Live as servants of God. Show proper respect to everyone. And then this is an interesting triad to think about. Love the brotherhood of believers, that is the local church. Love the church. Fear God because he is the highest authority and honor the king. Because you see, all these domains belong to God. You, have, you should love the church. You should fear God and you should honor the king. And those all go together. And that's all part of valuing everything the way it should be valued. That's what respect is. Showing openly through manners and duties what values things have in particular relationship to their right authorities. And that goes from everything to—I I was at a thing not that long ago where there were a bunch of people with Governor Walker who didn't know Governor Walker any more than I did, and they all called him Scott, and I called him Governor Walker. And I will always do so. Because that is the respect, right, that's deserved. I don't—presidents that I don't like, I make a point to say president so-and-so before in front of their name. I, I would not say Bush back in the day or Obama now. I try to never say that. I always say President Bush and President Obama. I give their authoritative designation to offer the respect that their office deserves because the further I grow in authority, you know what I find out? It bites. It's really difficult. You disappoint everybody. It's very hard to be honorable in it and so on. And people who don't have High levels of authority have no idea how difficult, how thankless, and how problematic it is, how many different things you're trying to bring together, and the, the more authority that you get, the more you have to face that, and the more I appreciate then people at higher levels of authority than me. One of the ways that you could translate this whole honor the king and yet fear God. God is the highest authority and yet he institutes authorities and you must submit to them would be to say it this way. Submission to authority is its own moral duty that must be factored into the equation of defiance. You hear what I'm saying? Submission to authority is its own moral duty that has to be factored into the equation of defiance. Right? So... And in the Bible, submission to authority has a very high value in that equation. You see, one of the reasons why when I was a younger man, and you tend to see this in younger people, um, there tends to be a quickness to defy authority is because they're very idealistic about certain things and oftentimes write about those things. But because they haven't been taught about authority, because the authorities in their life feel like, feel embarrassed to teach about authority, like to teach about its dynamics and its moral value and those sorts of things, they, they don't understand the moral category related to submitting to authority. They believe that anytime somebody authority does anything that's sort of wrong, you should stand up and defy the authority. Whether it's your parents or your professor or your governor or president or Congress or whatever. It's not true. All of the benefit of the doubt goes to the authority. All the time. And submitting to the authority is its own moral obligation. And doing your duty in relationship to that authority has a very high moral category in the way God has administrated the world and commanded it to be. 
And so when you decide, is this the right time to defy, the bar is actually really quite high. And the better you understand the benefits of authority in the world, how necessary it is, how difficult it is for people in it, and all that, the more you will realize how to do that math when you try to figure out what the right thing to do is. And even when you do defy authority, you will do it totally differently than if you don't understand sufficiently about authority. And you see, once you realize that, it actually dramatically frees us because everything we do touches some evil. Almost everything that you do will touch some evil. It will promote some evil. It will, it will lend legitimacy to something. It will create an association with something. It will produce an income that some portion of goes to something. I mean, it's, it's everything. I mean, it's like, you know, it's like, the, it's like the Christian who says, I'm not going to go to that store because that store participates in the United Way. The United Way, as part of what it gives to, it gives to Planned Parenthood. A portion of what Planned Parenthood does is do abortions. Therefore, I can't buy cookies there. Does that make sense? And listen, I'm not saying you can't do that because you don't have a duty to buy cookies anywhere. What, what I'm saying is, is that when we recognize that, for example, when, it's my, when I have a job somewhere, it's my job to do the best I can to support the interests of my boss. That's my job. And not everything that I will do in that job will make the world a better place. And some of it will maybe enriching a jerk, and some of it may be using coffee beans that weren't fair traded, and some of it may be doing things that I do not like some association or implication of it. But it is more your duty to fulfill your role than it is to upend all of human society to create the proper rebellion, that you are morally freed to function and act in life. Because here's the problem. The minute you start thinking of like, well, there's this association and there's that association. Listen, you don't, have, you don't know the first thing about all the associations you know nothing about. I always used to laugh when, like, like, the John Stewart Daily Show would make fun— they would make fun of Christians sometimes for boycotting things, right? And it wasn't that the boycotting thing wasn't bad, but he would joke about the other things Christians bought that had, like, all these enormously problematic moral things related to them, too. And he was trying to show the inconsistency. Well, the reality is, is that everything, 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 everything in your whole life is full of— these compromised moral associations and relationships, everything. The reason why you can feel good at all about a life that you may have nar narrowed in purity is actually because of how, of how ignorant you are about the purity of the things you're still doing. And so when God says, it is your duty to be a wife, I don't care what your husband is like. I don't care about the imperfections of how he parents. And it is your duty to be a wife. It is your duty to be a husband. It is your duty to do the best job as a fry cooker as you can be, even though you know it promotes childhood obesity in some, right? And if you can get a, and then look, if you can get a job at the place that buys all their food from less than 20 miles from here, and you feel like you want to do that, you should go do that. But, but as long as you need to work, and as long as you have that job, it is your duty under that authority to fry as many fries as you can, salt them as savory as possible, and to not eat more than you're allowed. 
And that is morally right. Now, there will be times where while we do our duty, we actually have to speak with our voice about what we think about what's happening. And then sometimes we need to do that and then shut our mouths and do what we're told. And here's what, here's what I know about morally conflicted people in power. They only listen to those people. Do you know what you do if you're in power with people who rebel? Do you know what you do? You don't give them an inch. You can't afford to. You cannot afford to. You can placate, you can pacify, you can whatever, but listen, people who rebel without reference to authority will never stop. There's no end to their rebellion. The minute you give them what they want, they'll want something else. It's like the old joke when the American ambassador went to like, it was Khrushchev or something during the era of the USSR, and there was this whole list of demands from the USSR, and he said, he said, let me just ask you a hypothetical question. Let's say the United States did everything that was on this list. What would happen then? Like, if we did all 30 things you guys want, then what would happen? And, and the story goes that the Russian diplomat kind of shrugged his shoulders and said, you'd get the next list. Right? People who are in authority will, will never promote you, will never listen to you, will give you as little as possible, will always see you as an adversary if you don't know how to submit to authority, do your duty, and so on. And if you do that, and you have moral discipline in it, and then you use your voice to speak into this situation and to call for reform and say, we could do this differently and I'm with you, but why, why not do it like this? We can make a win-win out of this and don't you see this? And I know when you got into this, you wanted to be this and we can be and that is the only way to do that. But you see, if you're so idealistic, you won't enter in because you don't want to be fouled. You won't enter into the structures of authority Every, that's where life happens. That's where everything of consequence happens. It happens within the poles of the structures of authority. Everybody has to live in the pig pen. That's just the way life is. And I want you to see <coughs> how loving God is. Because he, he could have said, you better figure it out. You better figure it out. You better figure out a way to go out of your house and to not do anything that promotes evil because I'm king, and I'm a righteous king, and you'd better figure it out. Or God could, choose, could not be morally beautiful. Or not care. Could not be the supreme beauty of all value that, would, that should draw us like a moth to flame to his greatness. He could just not be that. At least theoretically. But instead, he is the supreme beauty and pleasure in and of all things good, honorable, and true. He declares himself the true and right authority over everything and says, therefore, you don't have to be afraid. If the moment comes where you must rebel, you don't have to be afraid. When that becomes the right thing to do and you step forward into it, you will be following one who did it before you. And that one died doing it. And that one received the greatest name and honor among all of creation. It was made king by the one who was in real authority. And that one was raised from the dead and given the inheritance of divinity. And that one is called the brother of those who follow him. And 
all of the world is full of the institutions of humanity. All of them are realms of authority and power, and all of them are imperfect in their associations. And you are responsible to fulfill your role and to do your duty within that context for the greatest good that you can. That's your job. And to the extent to which you can, use your voice to speak to the powers for truth and to lead in good directions. And at the moments where it is literally and directly a choice between obeying them and God, you must choose God. When you understand how God gives back the authorities of the world to create roles and duties for us so that when we understand authority and submit to it properly, it actually frees our conscience gives us courage, and unleashes us into the world with momentum rather than paralyzing us, you begin to realize the beauty of the gospel. You, be, you begin to realize that God is so wise. He is so wise that he has taken a concept that you hate as bad as authority and made it beautiful. We'll spend some time in the, in the next few weeks looking at... Um, how do you work this out in some of the details? But one of the places where the rubber has to hit the road on this is you can look through— there's only a very few people in the Bible that are thought of as great because they defied the state. Or, so Obadiah, the guy who was in charge of Ahaz's household, you're like, wait, didn't he go along with things? Well, sort of. Yeah, he did. He did a great job of running Ahab's household. But what he also did was laundered money— so that when Ahab was out killing God's prophets, he backwater funded two caves and food and water to hide a hundred of them. And he was commended for that. Now, that is morally complicated right there now. Okay? Um, that, I mean, I can't, that's worth a long discussion, probably utilizing some kind of beverage. You know, with Daniel— <laughs> With Daniel, it's a very interesting case because when, when Daniel gets thrown in the lion den, den, lion's den, it wasn't not bowing to an idol. That's Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. It's their Hebrew names. With Daniel, there's a law that says you can't pray to your God for 30 days. It's not permanent. Right? It's not permanent. And, and he, yet that afternoon, he goes up and prays. Now that's very interesting. Because there's a lot of people who would pragmatically be like, you know what, it's 30 days. I'll pray in my head for 30 days. You know, whatever. They can't stop me. But Daniel actually makes a point to do exactly what he does every day because he does not recognize the authority of the state in this matter. He just doesn't. The state has lots of authority, has no authority in this matter. And part of—one of the geniuses, I think, really, of Lutheranism— um, was that Martin Luther said, listen, in the Bible, the authority of the church and the authority of the state are separated, and the state gets most of it, and it has no authority in the realm of the church. None. And it was actually that understanding that actually came into the American experience was the basis of church and state separation. That there was—that the state had no authority in the church, and the church had no authority in the state. And so when, the, when these apostles are told not to do anything— they say, listen, what you guys need to understand is that in Psalm 118.22, it says, the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone, which literally means the people in charge didn't like it, and it became the most important thing. 
the state will virtually never be behind the actual gospel. In any situation of all of humanity, period. And it's not because the state is satanic. It's not. The state is just a reflection of the culture and the people, and it's both good and bad, like everything. But that which controls people's lives is almost never in favor of that which directs and restores and motivates and propels people's lives. It produces disobedient people who think God is greater than the state. But the reason why they said you don't have any authority is he says, listen, salvation is found in no one else. There's no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. You see, he's saying the, whole, the concept of name is authority. It's an authority conflict, right? The people in charge rejected something that's really the most important. And the reason why God has done that, right? It basically says, God has taken the stone these builders threw away and made it the most important stone in the whole building. He says, listen, the reason God overruled the state was because there isn't another authority under men by which people can be saved. There isn't an alternative one. Like, you might be able to create another authority for this or that, and you can, you can get rid of one governmental organization and create another one, and you can close one school and open another one. You can change the different authorities, but there, there, there is no alternative authority for salvation. There's just nothing, no such thing exists. There's only one. There's only one institution that bears salvation to the whole world. There's only one message, and there's only one name. And therefore, no authority on earth, including the state, has any jurisdiction in whether or not God can be prayed to, the name of Jesus can be preached or shared, and so on. Now, if your boss tells you, look, I don't pay you to talk about Jesus, your response to that is this. I'm sorry, I'm sorry I've been stealing from the company. I really apologize. I will get to work right now if you're standing around talking with somebody about Jesus instead of working. But if when everybody else isn't doing anything, somebody says, how do you get through that kind of thing? You say, it's because I believe in Jesus. He's the risen king. He's everything. And they go, look, you can't say that here. That's different. No one has that jurisdiction. Literally no one. See how easy those two things are to confuse? be confused, we actually have to think about these things a little bit. But when we do, knowing that Jesus is the absolute authority, and yet he gives us back a moral clarity within our duties and roles by reordering how we relate to the world's authorities, and then teaches us how and when to be rebellious and in what ways, God has actually created an enormous amount of freedom and produce an enormous amount of courage because he says, if, th if you do this, I'm with you. This is what I'm with. And if you will do this, I'm with you. And it should produce an enormous amount of courage so much so that this says that when the people that were defied watched this, the response to that was that they were astounded, which is a little bit like what Peter says later when he writes a book 20 or 30 years later where he says, when you act this way, you silence the talk of foolish men. There's, there is an impact, and that's the whole point. That every authority under heaven and everybody within every authority, either in authority or under authority, would see that there's only one name by which we can all be saved. 
One name where we can all be reunited to God, forgiven of what's past, be remade for what's new, and be re-released into a world full of all kinds of authorities to act and submit and sometimes rebel because of his authority and his greatness and his beauty. And to, in, within all those places, offer the name and salvation of Jesus. Um, speaking of the name of Jesus, we're going to end with a couple of baptisms that couldn't be here, people who couldn't be here for Easter. Um, some really good stories. Actually, I saw them last service. Um, this is part, baptism literally is saying, I belong to him and under the authority of Jesus. You're baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's what it is. It's saying, I belong to the authority of Jesus. I accept the full authority of Jesus. And so in a minute here, you're going to see some people's stories and then some folks are going to baptize them and then we're going to sing and roll. Let's pray. Father, I pray that as we um, take some time now to hear these stories and rejoice in people coming under your right authority. And as we think about how we're going to live this out, I pray that you would fill us with a sense of thankfulness and joy and a sense of actually how easy you are to please in this, how clear what you've said is, how actually how doable it is, how in such a complicated world, how possible it is to actually know what we are supposed to do in every moment and how freeing that ought to be for us. I pray that you would fill us with a sense of thankfulness and joy and pleasure in the simplicity of what you've called us to do, how easy you are to please, and how obvious exercising faith would be in so many areas of our life. And in the places where these things are attention to be managed, where it's very difficult to know if it's a time to rebel or a time to speak and submit or what, would you please give wisdom? Would you please give a place to ask questions about this within the local church so that we could pool our wisdom and your spirit's leading to know what is the right thing to do? And I pray that whatever we do, we would do it with faith and with humility. And I pray that all of our submission, rebellion, and use of authority, all those things would affect for the good of the world and for our growth and walk with you, but namely and mainly for you to be seen for who and what you are. I pray in Jesus' name.